Well, hello, everyone at home. Thank you for joining us. Today, I'm here with Honorable Malcolm Turnbull to discuss rational environmental advocacy as one part of the Rhodes Climate Leadership Series. My name is Brian O'Callaghan. I'm here at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, and I also lead Oxford's Economic Recovery Project. It's my great honor to be joined as mentioned by the Honorable Mr. Malcolm Turnbull, who is the former Prime Minister of Australia. And Malcolm, good day. Good to be with you, Brian. I, I know that your recent departure from politics hasn't quite meant retirement and your schedule remains hectic. So thanks a lot for joining us. My pleasure. Malcolm, we already know each other, but not all watching this from contexts around the world will be familiar with your story. Uh, so I thought I could give a brief introduction. You are an Australian from Sydney, like myself, who studied here in Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar in the late 1970s, uh, before working for a time in journalism, then moving back to Australia to find great success as a barrister. From there, Malcolm, you shifted your career from law to finance, um, moving into investment banking. And I know from reading your memoir that you had uh, quite, a, quite an interesting time there involved with several high visibility transactions covering communications and quite a bit more. Malcolm, you then turned your attention to politics, sequentially filling the roles of Australian Minister for the Environment and Water, and then Australian Minister for Communications, and eventually the 29th Prime Minister of Australia. You obviously, Malcolm, have presided over a long history and several career changes, many brilliant twists and turns. I'm curious, where did your interest in environmental advocacy begin? And what spurred your focus on climate action or one of your focuses, which was climate action, uh, during your time in politics? Well, just facing reality. I mean, uh, you know, the reality of global warming and the the causes of it and the consequences of it are becoming all too apparent. It's, it's no longer a question for debate as to whether it's real, other than in the lunatic uh, echo chambers of the populist right, both in Australia and the United States in particular. Uh, but it's a look, it's a real and present danger, right? I mean, I, I don't see how you can, how anyone uh, in public life or public affairs or really in any line of work can afford not to pay the closest attention to it. Yeah, I mean, you use quite strong words there to describe those who are not as um, pro-climate. For the broader context in the audience, you operated as a politician from inside one of the most climate-skeptical mainstream mm -hmm. political parties of really any high-income nation. In your memoir, there was a phrase where, in an opening to one of the chapters, you described open hostility within the Liberal Party to the very concept of climate change. I mean, Brian, to, just cutting to the chase, uh, this is the problem. In the United States and in Australia in particular, the right has in many respects turned the issue of global warming from something that should be a question of physics into a matter of identity or belief or values. And you see this particularly in the United States with the Republican Party. I mean, if you want to win a primary for the Republican Party in the United States, for God's sake, don't say you take global warming seriously. I mean, 
that would be almost as damaging as saying that Joe Biden won the election. So the and here in Australia, while we're not quite at that lunatic extreme, uh, the coal and fossil fuels and uh, defending the fossil fuel economy has become an article of faith for many people on the right. And this has been largely informed by and amplified by, underwritten by in many respects, not just the fossil fuel sector, which makes sense, but by the right-wing media, which is in this country is overwhelmingly owned by Rupert Murdoch. And of course, he has a big chunk of it in the United States. So another Oxford graduate, uh, Mr Murdoch, uh, is probably, in the English-speaking world at least, the individual that has done more than any other to obstruct uh, effective action to address global warming. It's a hell of a legacy. Yeah, indeed, it is. And I mean, Malcolm, in the political context that you were operating in, you surely weren't the only person who did, let's say, believe in, and that's ridiculous terminology, but believe in mm. climate change. And you weren't the mm. only person in that party who was, you know, had ideological perspectives that were against the norm, let's say, but you were one of mm. the few who took a stand on climate. Why do you think that was? And I suppose to take it a step back for the purpose of this series, you know, what characteristics would you have defined there as climate leadership? Well, look, the, the, the really interesting question is the way in which this issue that should be one of physics was turned into an issue of political identity or belief. I mean, just a few weeks ago, a, a great Australian politician, Andrew Peacock, died. Now, Andrew was uh, leader of the Liberal Party on several occasions, leader of the opposition. He was never prime minister, sadly, uh, but he was a very good foreign minister, had a very long political career. Uh, Andrews, when Andrew led the Liberal Party to almost defeating Bob Hawke in 1990, in fact, they got more, a larger percentage of the, of the national votes than Labor did, but didn't win a majority of the seats, which of course sometimes happens. Um, the Liberal Party went to that election with a commitment to cut emissions, uh, to, you know, to address the, the concerns about the, uh, global warming and climate change. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it's a, it, it, it was a Republican administration uh, that, um, that led the the charge on introducing ineffectively an emissions trading scheme to deal with sulfur dioxide emissions, um, and you know that became uh, covered. And indeed, the uh, that that was one thing they did. But the other thing that Bush Senior undertook was, of course, the global action to address uh, emissions of CHCs that obviously were destroying the ozone layer. So th there has been. There has been this change, you know, where we, we've gone from having a rational debate about how to deal with a real problem to denying the problem exists. And, you know, Michael Mann, a uh, very prominent American climate scientist and, and writer, has written a good book about this called The New Climate Wars. But it is very much a, a product of this you know, I, again, you know, I hesitate to use the word crazy because it's uh, it's overladen. But but what do you? How else do you describe such denialism? And and it is you know here in Australia, man, gosh, it's only you know the summer before last that we 
had the worst bushfires in our history. So we are seeing the real red raw consequences of a hotter, drier climate. But that is that that's the fundamental problem. It is that political, it's that political problem. I mean, now uh, we are in a position where, and well, I'll just step back a bit. When I was Howard's environment minister in 2007, and at that time, the Howard government proposed an emissions trading scheme. Really? You can, you know, now only a few years late after that, uh, Tony Abbott turned that into, you know, the great sort of uh, jihad against uh, carbon pricing or emissions trading schemes. But, you know, Howard, Howard was proposing an ETS and Labor was matching it. Their policies were for all intents and purposes the same. Uh, but at that time, there was no question that we would have to pay more for energy if we wanted to reduce our emissions. And so there was always a legitimate argument, how much do we want to pay to save the planet? We are now at the point where on any view, the cheapest form of electricity is renewables, variable renewables, uh, backed by storage of one kind or another. And so we can have cheaper electricity and clean electricity. But still, we have this extraordinary political opposition to it. It is largely a function of right-wing politics in Australia and, and the United States. Uh, and, you know, Australia's government, my, you know, successor, Scott Morrison's government's position on this, which has actually gone backwards a long way since I was PM, um, is, uh, is now a source of enormous, really enormous concern for our closest friends and allies. I mean, the, the Brits have been chastising Australia and the Americans have been very blunt. I mean, the White House was actively briefing against the Australian government recently on this issue. So it's a it's it's hard to explain other than uh, as a it's become an identity issue. But you know we you see in the hallowed halls of Oxford where you assume that people are rational and by and large they are. You you have to recognise we have you you have to recognise and I'm no longer there of course but I have to recognise too that there has been a market created for lies. And crazy and lies and and craziness has been normalized, leaving climate to one side. The best example is that 70% of Republican voters in the United States presently believe Donald Trump actually won the last presidential election and Joe Biden stole it. Now, this is right up there with the moon landings were faked, Elvis is still alive, you know, Hitler's living in a villa in the Andes. You know, I literally barking mad stuff. Historically, we've assumed that conspiracy theories and craziness uh, was sort of harmless, you know, like Elvis is alive. Well, if you want to believe that, that's, that's great, but it's, you're wrong, but kind of doesn't matter. But we're now starting to see real, really existential consequences for this normalisation of lying and, and you know, anti-science BS, you know, and you see this with the delay, you know, with the obstruction of climate action on the one hand, and, of course, politically, you know, I tend to the 6th of January. I mean, who would imagine that the US Capitol would be stormed by a mob, mob wanting to lynch the Vice President and the Speaker 
but they were. And what drove them to do that was that they had been told uh, by Trump and Fox News and others that Biden had stolen the election. Yeah, I mean, it's an, it's an appalling and dangerous reality. And taking a step back, trying to draw together the different themes there, what I'm hearing on the climate leadership side is stick to what you believe in, even in the face of what seems to be crazy adversity um, from those who you may otherwise, you know, be in partnership with, at least from my perspective, you know, making forward progress in the climate arena uh, is done with change from the inside as well, right? So well, what you need, Brian, you need, mm. en- as I used to say when I was Prime Minister, engineering and economics as opposed to ideology and idiocy. I mean, there are a lot of big things that you've got to grapple with. I mean, one of my concerns has been for a long time now the problem that as we introduce more and more variable renewable energy, wind and solar particularly, into the grid, uh, how are we going to firm that? How are we going to back it up when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing? Now, I, you know, obviously I took action on that in Australia, as you know, with the construction of a very large pumped hydro scheme in the Snowy Mountains, Snowy Hydro 2.0, which is under construction now. But there needs to be a lot more of that. You know, we, we, we can have absolutely reliable, clean energy and at lower cost. Uh, but we do have to plan it. You know, you can't just snap your fingers and it'll happen. It's got to be thoughtfully planned and you've got to recognise there are some temporal asymmetries, I'd call them, in the sense that you can build a series of solar farms very quickly and they will generate electricity, but it'll be variable and they will also dramatically undermine the economics of continuous thermal generators, for example, that burn coal. But Obviously, uh, you do create have that problem of how do you provide continuous uh, electricity, provision of electricity when the sun isn't shining, and hence the need, you know, for these other measures. It, I mean, there are things like green hydrogen that are on the horizon, coming very close, and I mean that's going to be a big part, part of it. But we, those people who suggest that we don't have the technology to get to net zero emissions, are wrong. We do. We have that technology. Um, will we have better technology in a decade? I'm sure we will. Absolutely, no doubt. But we can get on with the job right now, and we should. Yeah, in full agreement on this side. And look, as an engineer, or perhaps former engineer now, uh, talking about the realities of asynchronous generation, we could go on for days. I do want to tie in, though, to one of the comments you brought up, which is in relation to the action that you took um, while in government. And I directly applaud a lot of the progress that you pushed forward on climate action. But you were also roundly criticized by climate advocates for not doing more. And I mean, you were one of the most powerful men in Australia. And some commentators Mm -hmm. suggested that you were not quite able to get all that you wanted to do done. So first, and we're nearing the end of our time here, but first, is that accurate? And second, what can climate advocates then learn from your experience? What does it take to push real change? Well, you need to get the numbers in Parliament, right? I mean, it's a politics is a numbers game. So, you know, there are a lot of people, particularly in social media, who criticise politicians for not doing this and not doing that. I encourage all of them to run for Parliament. I do. I mean, politics is hard. It, it's only simple to people who don't understand it and have never participated in it. It's really hard. 
You have to bring people with you. You have to deal with people who are uh, uh, cross-grain, difficult, have got contrary interests, contrary ambitions. You've got to deal with people that are very smart. You've got to deal with people that are not smart at all. It's complicated because people are complicated. So that's what, you know, that's what building consensus and so forth in, in involves. I mean, you get uh, people, you know, um, will often criticise politicians and prime ministers for compromising. That is what politics is all about. That's what parliaments are set up to do, to bring people together so that they do hopefully, you know, debate issues and come to some kind of consensus. Uh, so ultimately, you have to you have to win elections. That's that that's what you need. You need leadership. Yes, you do need leadership. Of course, you do. But you need it needs to be leadership that that has the sufficient support to get things done. You know, a leader uh, without followers is just taking a walk. Uh, you know, you you've got to you've got to be able to bring people with you, and it can be very. It, it's very difficult. I mean, I got a lot more done as prime minister than I thought I'd be able to do. I would have liked to have gotten more done on energy. I am what concerns me more than the fact that we didn't get as much done as I'd like to done is that things seem to have gone backwards. I mean, the perversity, political perversity in Australia is this, that right now the economics in favour of moving to zero emissions has never been stronger. It's cheaper, right? That's, that's a hell of a thing. It is cheaper. You can have your cake and eat it too. At the same time, the environmental imperative for doing so has never been more urgent. You know, we're seeing the reality of the consequences of global warming. It's no longer something off in the future. So what's holding us up is crazy, literally crazy politics. And you, you see this everywhere in Australia at the moment. You saw it with the Republicans in uh, the United States. Um, the Brits, I think, are very fortunate that climate action has been, by and large, bipartisan. And that's a great credit, credit to David Cameron. I know he's in the wars at the moment, but as a Conservative leader, David did an extraordinary job uh, in getting the Conservative Party onto an environmentally progressive platform. He used to say, vote blue, go green. Uh, and that was that's very good. And Boris has continued with that. So, you know, that is uh, among the big English-speaking democracies, uh, you know, Britain's uh, really been much more consistent than, than, you know, any of the others, including Canada and particularly the US and Australia. Well, we're pretty much out of time here, Malcolm. But maybe a final opportunity for you in just a couple of sentences. If you were to reflect on your time in politics and thereafter, how would you summarize the characteristics of good climate leadership? Well, good climate leadership is leadership that's effective in, in getting change. You know, there, there, are, there, are, there are none so pure as the impotent. So people who want to be purest about things and allow the perfect to be the enemy of the good and, you know, attack politicians who are trying to affect change but aren't going far enough. I mean, that's just self-indulgent, um, futile, you know, ravings from the impotent, you know, sidelines. I mean, ultimately, history is made by those who turn up. And if you're out of the room, you're out of the deal. There's no point being a theorist 
what you have to do is if you want to affect uh, action on climate, you've got to get in there and do something about it. Now, that may involve getting involved in parliament, it may involve being involved in an organisation that uh, puts pressure on big companies to move to, you know, net zero by, you know, an early date. But action is what is needed. Just sort of tweeting and Facebooking away is, is fine if that makes you feel good. But, you know, never forget, you've got to, if you're going to get things done, you've got to get into the political process. So, you know, that is the, and I mean, I think that, and I mean, this is where I give Boris great credit for, right? Boris is making the case and it's never been easier than it is today to make it. And, and you know, Fatty Burrell made this point with a uh, report from the uh, International Energy Agency just in the last 24 hours. It has never been easier to make the case because it's correct that we can have lower, you know, zero emissions, cheaper electricity and more jobs, right? Because technology has basically solved the problem for us. But, you know, so technology, including Australian scientists on solar, at, you know, the University of New South Wales, Martin Green and his team, they've, got, they've basically put the tools on the bench. But what governments and business have got to do now is deploy them. And that's the, you know, that is the challenge. Now, I think in most countries, there's strong consensus to do that. In Australia and the United States, it's become a very partisan issue, and that is because of this way in which what should be a matter of physics has been turned into a effectively a matter of religion. No, that's a brilliant summary to end on. For goodness sake, stop just Thank talking you. about it. Do it. And let's do it. Yeah, that's good. that could be a good advertising slogan. Yeah. Okay. Or a, and I'm or sure a song. you would also or a song. Would, oh, I would love that. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'm sure you would also right. include some of those um, social dimensions in that great climate leadership there to ensuring Absolutely. that others aren't left behind. Okay. But Mr. Turnbull, well, thank right, you so much right for sharing you. your thoughts. And uh, to our viewers at home, next step for you is to go to the Roads Trust YouTube channel for additional videos in the climate leadership series and a whole lot more there. Thank you, Mr. Turnbull. Thanks a Have lot. A good night. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Good night.